0: You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Before listening to today's episode of The Outspoken Bible, we wanted once again to make you aware that the subject matter, lament and suffering, might be distressing or difficult for some listeners. Please do take care of yourselves and be alert to your responses as we talk. A good starting point for helping you to do that is the Beyond Disaster resource that we have mentioned over these episodes This is a free-to-download Bible-based resource written to help people bring their emotions to God in times of crisis. You can find that at scottish.bible. Well, hello and welcome to season two, episode seven of the Outspoken Bible with me, Fiona Stewart and my friends, Jen Robertson and Neil Glover. This is the third part of our three episode series linked to the Beyond Disaster resources that are available from Scottish Bible Society. And we're gonna be discussing the topic of lament today. Before we do that though, um, I think we should really clear something up from last episode. Neil, I don't know if you remember, but you mentioned that uh, when I asked you what gave you joy, it gave you joy to have Amy with us. And a listener got in touch to say that we've kind of let that hang didn't we without explaining who amy was amy is our new team member she's come on board to engineer and to edit the podcast and we're absolutely delighted to have her here i mean i know you two are but i am particularly because it means that i can focus really on what i'm trying to say rather than worrying about whether we can all be heard or not so welcome to you amy it also we've had some listener feedback
1: Yes, That's exciting. this is very exciting. But just to just to go back, I feel like you've been kind of like the player manager for the last wee while, Fiona. <laughs> you've you've been the you've not only been on the pitch, but you've also been pulling it all together. So I'm delighted that effectively Amy is now I don't know the Pep Guardiola of of our podcast.
0: That's good. Does that mean I get to be the left back? Does that even work? I don't know. <laughs> you're
1: the you're the you're the you're the it's playmaker. Different. You're the Lionel Messi of the outfit.
0: Enjoy that. I have absolutely no idea what that means, but I love it. Um, c- mostly because I see small children with his name on you, the shirt. You
1: just—you just sound like one of those judges a few years ago that went, "Who are the Spice Girls?"
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Who is this messy of whom you speak? <laughs> and we have though had some listener feedback yeah, yeah, yeah. Good from for the We love of listener Bert feedback. Like,
1: yeah,
0: I know. Well, we're really keen to to get that going actually. So that we really appreciated it. And um, Jen, I think I think. William was in touch with you, wasn't he? Directly.
2: Yeah, he was in touch with me and Neil, but I don't think Neil has had time to fully engage with William's comments. Maybe yeah, that's that's the thing. Um It
1: was one of these ones where it was a really long message, and I thought I need to do this justice, and then it just it just goes. I did say something, I think.
2: You did. <laughs> uh, so William was pointing us to well, Subtext,
1: wholly inadequate, <laughs> but yes, you did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he was pointing us towards a singer-songwriter, Natalie Bergman, who's just brought out an album. But what he said was that it's really the backstory to her writing this uh, these series of songs um, that makes it interesting, which you can find the article. It's an interview with her in Relevant Magazine, so we'll put mm-hmm. that link um, in the notes. Um, yeah. And I've I read the article, and really, Natalie faced a a, a terrible tragedy the death of her father i think and she went off i mean literally into the wilderness to a place where no one was around in this kind of retreat place and wrote these songs and they really reflect the psalms that we've been looking at and that sense of lament and pouring your heart out to god and telling him exactly how you feel in in a terrible situation so i would really say that's worth a look and worth, worth a listen as well to what she produced Fantastic. from her wilderness experience.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And thanks for getting in touch with that. Again, if you want to do that, there's the, the button on the website, or I guess if you if you know us, you can contact us directly. Um, I'd be also interested to know where people are listening. So William did talk about the fact that he's been listening when he's out and about, I think. So on Well, I'm
2: I just going to say, mm. he, he William is my friend. He's also the minister of my home church. And uh, he, he listens often, I think, on a Sunday morning before church begins when he takes the dog out and it's been lovely actually listening to sermons because quite often we get a wee mention (laughs) as he reflects on
0: different bits of the bible as well that's good that is very good well thank you so much and uh, if anyone else wants to get in touch tell us where they're listening what they've found helpful then be good to hear from you
1: i want to say with william as well william and i have a little competition or did have on another podcast a, which had a feature called Clergy Corner. This is a national podcast um, where um, people could write in, and ministers would write in, and there was a whole bunch of us had a little bit of a competition to see who got the most mentions. And I think William did pretty well, so he is now the the oh, he is now head on our very own version of Clergy <laughs> Corner.
0: <laughs> very much so. I've yeah. heard him mentioned on on Mail actually a number of times. <laughs> Fred, you mentioned as well, <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> good. I feel as though I need to be in Portfolio Workers Portico or something.
2: Can I, I, can I give you me. a wee quote from the interview yeah. with, with Natalie? We, uh, the final thing that Natalie Bergman says in our interview about our album um, in Relevant Magazine, she says, ultimately, the message was, I think she means from God. We are alone here on earth and we have to trust in God because that's the only presence that will be in our lives eternally and forever.
0: That's beautiful, isn't it? That's beautiful. So as you mentioned, Jen, we'll put the the, uh, link to that in the show notes. So before we get into the main things, it's time once again for...
1: I got very excited when I listened to this recently because it has a sound effect I hadn't caught up with this and I like the fact as well that you empty your entire jewelry collection onto a table when it comes to Jane's gems and uh, yeah so my um, rant is maybe a little bit more serious this week it's to do with the fact that when we talk about trauma we often it's it's like something that nobody can really disagree with. You know, this is a really serious thing. It has to be addressed, and it's terrible. And we like to think if we ever came across this, we would res- respond in a way which was sympathetic and supportive of whoever was experiencing that. Someone who reminds us that that's maybe not the case, and we need to be a bit more aware, is someone who I think is a modern day saint. Uh, well, we're all saints, of course, but this is Rachel Den Hollander, who. In the United States, a number of years ago, was a gymnast. She was abused by a coach or a doctor called Larry Nassar. And many years after that, she realized what had happened to her was abuse. And she began to collect together stories of people who had been abused in a similar way. And it transpired that this was a massive thing and that this doctor, Larry Nassar, had abused hundreds and hundreds of young female gymnasts, often under, literally under the noses of their own parents. And she gathered people together. She was a lawyer and through great struggle, she brought the case to court and she became famous when in the court case, she gave a testimony to a victim support statement where she talked about what had happened, but she also talked from a very, very deep place about forgiveness. And in many ways, she reminds me of Corrie Ten Boom, uh, the great saint of the church who had gone through the concentration camps and afterwards preached a message of forgiveness. But what's really interesting for me, or, or not interesting, sad, is that Rachel Den Hollander, having lived in the world of gymnastics, then became a focus for people who had experienced abuse in the church. And once again, dozens and dozens of women began to contact her and find support. And she has become a kind of focal point um, for Christians in... in um, well, a number of different denominations in the States. But as a result of that, she has also been vilified. People have accused her of being disloyal. People have accused her of amplifying the problem in order to to generate profit for her law practice, even though she does most of this stuff in her own time. And uh, it strikes me that to take a stand for trauma and people who are victims of trauma is a prophetic thing to do and it will come at a cost because institutions do not want to know about this stuff and will turn on the people who are the messengers that mm-hmm. say this should not happen. So Glover's Off this week is, is an impassioned rant in support of Rachel Den Hollander and all those who stand for people who are survivors of trauma and stand against the institutions which often want to remain deaf and blind to the abuse that has happened with, under the umbrella of those organisations.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. There's there's a there's something as well isn't there for those of us who are part of institutions yeah. about how we respond not only to, to to polarize that but actually what's our responsibility and our role in in support and speaking up for survivors.
1: I think that's really important Fiona because you know I all of us are, are in some ways charity trustees and we're always told that our number one responsibility is to protect the charity. But some of the decisions and things in my life I'm most embarrassed of or most regretful of are times where I've represented an institution and in doing so have damaged an individual.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a good point to to segue into what we're going to talk about t- today. Um, we're thinking about lament. So we're following on from our previous two sessions and again, linked into the, the beyond uh, disaster resources that are available from SBS and um, Lament's an interesting one, isn't it? So, so I, I'm i going to put my hands up here and slightly shamefaced say that I, as somebody who's who's been a Christian for a long time, but also somebody who is interested in literature and the arts and so on, it, I didn't really realise that there was a specific structure to lament. I think I always thought lament was a kind of generic description of a sad poem or a sad psalm or a, or a sad uh response to lament and something and um, when I, when i did the the trauma healing training that we that we've talked about previously actually we, we talked quite a bit about the the structure particularly of of psalms of lament and particularly the importance of the complaint as part of that so it'd be good to start off maybe just thinking a little bit about structure um, it, we're, we're talking today about Psalm 13, Psalm 46, Psalm 116, and then we've sneaked in Revelation 21.4 um, as a sort of rounding off point as well. But is that right? Is that is it, is it true to say that within a Psalm of Lament, there is always a very set structure?
1: Yeah, I, I want to slightly push against this. So this comes from a form of biblical criticism, which is called form criticism. And What that often sought to do was to discern structures that existed and certain idealised structures of of psalms. It also happens in the Gospels. You get it in in, in parables as well. I'm not totally sure there is a set structure because often scholars will then argue about what the structure is. And if there was an actual set structure, there wouldn't be so much variance. If there possibly is a structure, it's maybe the one that's in Psalm 13 where the complaint is uttered. Um, and then it is addressed to God and then there's some sense of resolution. But that doesn't always happen. It's never as neat as that. Often the the, the Psalms move about uh, and in one famous case that we've covered already, in Psalm 88, there is no resolution. So I I think it's useful to think about these things. I think when I've heard form-critical scholars give lectures, I'm often just in awe of the level of knowledge that they have. So it's not a form of scholarship. I just want to brush under the carpet. Um, I would argue possibly that there is not a set structure. I think it's slightly more complicated than that. But I think the point that you made, which is that there is always a complaint, I think that's very true. There is always something offered to God that says, this is not right, and God, I want you to address this. Mm -hmm.
0: And I I mean, mean, I'm interested in in how we live that out because I'm not sure that we're terribly good at issuing complaint. I think we bury our feelings a lot of the time. We bury what we're actually thinking. Yeah,
1: it, it goes against a profound narrative that the biblical scholar who's spoken against us is Walter Brueggemann. He talks about the dominant therapeutic narrative of the modern world. And what he means by that is that um, there's an understanding, and this goes right into advertising, that you have a problem, you get a product, and then the, the product makes you better. So whether the, the product is, is a Lynx deodorant or, and you, you know, I, I smell, I have Lynx deodorant, I then spray it on me and suddenly I am a magnet to potential romantic partners. Or um, even, you know, Diet Coke. Um, I have a problem, uh, I want to assuage my thirst, I have Diet Coke and suddenly I become a very popular person. Now that dominant therapeutic narrative has been absorbed by the church. And we do say something like, um, I was a sinner, come to Jesus, and then you'll be okay. And even though we, we, we often say, well, you know, you still have problems and so on, actually the way that we sing and the way that we talk of God still very much fits that narrative. I had a problem, I met Jesus, and now I'm fixed. And the Psalms and the act of complaining seems to go against that. The only time you get to complain to God, normally we say, is if you're being persecuted. But very often we're saying, well, it's more complicated than that. What the Psalms encourage us to do, I think, is to understand that 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 therapeutic narrative doesn't quite fit and that the, the life of faith is much more complicated. And it is far more important to be honest in your life of faith rather than to try and conform to some supposed narrative and the feeling that we're betraying that if we complain.
2: I was thinking about that exact thing when I was reading Psalm 13 and how we use bits of the Bible, for example, on greeting cards. Now, you would get verses five and six on a Christian greeting card. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. But we wouldn't put verses one to four on a greeting Uh card where it talks about how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long am I going to wrestle with my thoughts? And I, I thought, I'm going to commit to changing this. And when I write cards to people, I'm going to put in these bits as well. Because yeah. maybe that, that's what we need to hear, isn't it? I mean, that's how we need to speak to God at times.
1: Yes, and it doesn't mean you've failed. And what's lovely about the Psalms is they give us permission to do that. You know, we're told in the scriptures to sing Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. And if these words are in the Psalms, and they, they invite us in to pray. I was at a funeral yesterday mm-hmm. where the person leading the funeral said at the start, this is not a time to be sad. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. And and yet I, I've, I was also with somebody recently who was really, really upset by a particular situation that they were in. They were a, a Christian. It was to do with a conflict and they were wrestling with it. And at one point they said to me, um, I don't think about anything apart from this. And I, I thought about that verse in Psalm 13, verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? And this is an experience that we all know. Sometimes we're in situations where you just can't stop thinking about them. And there it is in Mm -hmm. Psalm 13, and we say that Mm -hmm. to God. Mm -hmm. But what really upset me, it was the only point in the conversation I got annoyed, was this person then turned to me and said, of course, I prayed about this and we are at peace. And I said, no, you're not at peace. You're absolutely tormented by this. And and own that because the Psalms tell you to do that.
0: God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place, where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's it's really complex, isn't it? Because it's rooted right into how we are with each other in community Mm. and even how we are in our honesty about ourselves, I think, because we, 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 it's not just that we say that to other people, but we, we mm-hmm. kind of say it to ourselves and and then push down what we're really feeling. It, I'm, I'm interested also in Psalm 46 in just thinking about the place of of not just lament as the individual, but also national event, mm-hmm. l- lament, global lament. This is bigger, isn't it, than just me and my... I'm not, I'm not diminishing me and my complaint, but it's it's bigger than that too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the, the, Psalm 46, verse 10 is probably one of the most famous verses in the whole of the Bible. Be still and know that I am God. Mm-hmm. But how often do we realize that the verse that comes before it, or the two verses, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. This is very, very political. And mm-hmm. I, I love it as well that the image of God there is one of breaking the bow and shattering the spear, burns the shields to fire. This is the God of disarmament, um, is also the God of be still and unknown. It, it's, mm. it's actually a, a psalm as well that makes me think of some of the things that worry me in the world at the moment. Uh, global heating and our inabilities to address um, high temperatures in the earth's atmosphere. And you 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 see things like I will not fear or we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I always, by the way, when I read that, I always think of the song Stand By Me, which is based on these these verses as well. Should the mountains fall into the sea <laughs> and I won't be afraid. I, I mean it's a brilliant, I love the whole whole psalm. Um but but yes, or the the rise of various authoritarian regimes again, and and you think God, what's happening here? And this is a reminder that God is in the middle of all this, and people will rise up with violence, but God will break and shatter the spear. This is this is political and personal.
2: Yeah, that, that struck me as well when I was reading uh, Psalm forty six about breaking the bow and the spear. And I, I think I've mentioned in the podcast that before that I'm in part of a Bible study group with four teenagers younger teenagers we've been meeting in zoom since the start of the year and we've been reading through the whole bible not the whole bible but specific stories to try and get an overview of what the bible's all about and we just read it and then we come together and we chat about it and we were reading joshua and you can maybe tell me which chapter it was neil because i'm struggling to find it but there's there's some really difficult stuff in in the book of joshua and the battles Mm. and one of them um god says to joshua uh, you're going to kill all the ha- horses and smash the chariots, and and I think it was Walter Burgman. Uh, that is how you say his name. Neil. You talk about him a lot. I read one, yeah Burgman. I read his commentary, and I, I'd never thought before because the young people were all upset about the horses, which and I was as well. That's our that's our Western 21st century at of the poor horses. But then he was saying a horse in that time was the real symbol of military power and mm-hmm. might, and so God is saying. It's the power and the mighty that are going to be destroyed. And actually, God is not quoted anywhere as saying, kill everybody, destroy everybody. He only says, destroy the horses and the chariots. And that resonated with me again when I read Psalm 46 about this breaking the bow and smashing the spear. That God, as you've said, Neil, is a God who brings down power and brings down those in authority who are misusing it. Um, and that is a hope we need to hold on to today isn't it when we see power being misused so often
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and in ways that we think of as as sophisticated
0: but actually it mm. speaks into our, our so-called sophistication doesn't it
1: yeah it's sorry I, yeah jen you're you're right there it is a part I, I just i was struggling whether to say this or not there are verses where god does come close to say kill everybody um Maybe not so much in Joshua, mm-hmm. but... Um, not in that, one, particular, yeah, one.
2: Not in that yeah. particular one. Yeah,
1: not in that particular one. Yeah, but there are, I mean, for me, it's one of the yeah. biggest struggles in the whole of the scripture is how you deal with those particular yeah. stories. We're probably not going to deal with that today. But what really disturbs mm-hmm. me as well is knowing how those verses were used to um, drive empire and destroy indigenous peoples. It, it's, it's really mm-hmm. disturbing. Yeah. Um we will maybe deal with that one another, Dave?
2: Yeah, we put put that on the agenda for, for a future but episode. I think it's such an important conversation when we're engaging with the Bible mm-hmm. though. And I I'm so privileged to be able to have these conversations with people much younger than myself. Very insightful. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and Jen, I think it speaks to what we've we've already talked about in that this thing of honesty with ourselves, honesty with yeah. one another, that that mm-hmm. speaking from my own experience, I think I, I'm really appreciative of of growing up when I was a younger Christian being part of a a church where you know those difficult passages were preached on and and we did talk about it uh, you know because I think we can we can be a bit therapeutic what was the phrase Neil?
1: Dominant therapeutic model yeah and we can even do it here I I, just to be honest with you Jen when you said that um about you know that bit about the horses and I think yeah that that's really strikes home and then you said the bit about you know do not kill people and I, I know that what you were meaning was in that particular story yeah. but i was really wrestling for the next two minutes going do i come in here do i upset the apple cart and we're, we're sometimes reluctant to do that but i think the three of us now have such a strong relationship that we know that we can there's space for that and i think yeah. one of the things that can happen mm-hmm. in churches is um if we're strong enough in our relationships we're able to to push against each other in certain things as well mm-hmm.
2: yeah and and that's what happened happens in that group that i'm describing um people of of all ages in the group will say no somebody will say oh yeah but it's okay because this happened and somebody said but no that i feel really unsettled by this 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 isn't Mm -hmm. this isn't the perception of god Mm -hmm. i've had and Mm -hmm. um i think we we how we need communities our churches to be communities where those kind of conversations are happening and we're grappling with them because if we don't the, the bible is just a therapeutic book. And we did some research as the Scottish Bible Society a couple of years ago now with young people aged 8 Mm -hmm. to 14. And they talked quite a lot in the research about how bits of the Bible give them comfort. Mm. But the other bit that came out was they had so many moral questions about the Bible. Is the Bible good? How how mm-hmm. can the Bible be good when it seems to clash mm-hmm. so often with what the culture I'm living in says mm-hmm. is good? And maybe, it's quite a big statement, maybe, maybe we've... We've pushed that therapeutic model because it's easy. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a nice verse that'll make you feel good, but we're not willing to say, oh well, what are the really hard questions? what are the really difficult bits of the Bible? We need to have that conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's a radical rethinking of of how we it's not just the verses is it it's the it's the bigger picture of what what the gospel is, what the what the message of the whole of scripture is if I'm understanding what you said at the beginning, yeah. right, Neil, what Brueggemann's arguing, it, it's actually, a, we've bought into the narrative, the, the consumer narrative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was just thinking as well, that this is something you said a while back and it comes through in your, one of your other podcasts, Fiona, um, in your conversations with Fiona Hollow is that one of the ways that a younger generation of Christians are saying that we failed the church is because we have failed to engage with the great political questions of the day and look at what we've done with mm-hmm. sam 46 mm. we've taken mm-hmm. that beautiful verse we Be still and know that i am god but we have probably entirely cast it within a personal frame without yeah. realizing yeah. that it actually belongs to a much bigger wider context and i think younger people mm-hmm. are really asking for the church to engage with that wider context as well
2: yeah and Again, about Psalm 46, you, this is the question you asked quite a few minutes ago, Fiona, <laughs> about it being part of community, about being part, it's, it's not a personal thing. And I think that what Neil just said has brought me back to that because in verse four, it talks about the city of God and mm-hmm. it's in the mm. city that um, peace and safety is found. It's with the other people. It's not just me and God uh, hanging on in a wee corner, but it, it's in the city. And I, and I know that, in the time the psalm was written i'm presuming you know being outside the city walls and being in the wilderness there's so many risks and dangers that you're facing so you need to be in the city but but what a beautiful image Mm -hmm. that is and how our churches need to be that this life-giving place that we don't do it alone Mm -hmm. um we need each other and come as we emerge from covid in the west and in scotland and not in the world but how are our churches going to respond to that? I was just feeling this morning that our church community, well, the ch- church community, I'm in, picked up really well. You know, when COVID began and we were looking out for each other, but now as we re-emerge and we refine different parts of life to connect with, will we struggle to be that mm-hmm. back in what mm-hmm. the world used to be? It's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so.
1: The the other thing that makes me think of Jane that that verse. Um, is of is because it's 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 a lovely image because Jerusalem itself does not actually have a river, so it's it's an idea of an invisible river, the the presence of God flowing through um, the the city. And you know you're talking about that as an image of the church. And just recently I, I heard a meditation recently online, someone thinking about rivers in the Bible and and the whole area that I'm in is dominated by the River T. The The idea of of some kind of flow of life giving water, which is invisible, moving through the people of God, I think is such a a beautiful and transformative Mm. image. And as Mm. you say, speaks very much to where we are at the moment.
2: Mm -hmm. So we're actually the river. The people of God in the city, with God at the heart of it are the river.
0: Yeah, and it's lovely, isn't it? Because that then links, I think, to to Ezekiel forty-seven, to that, you know, the river from the from the temple that flows and the and the trees, which then to me brings me to then Revelation twenty-one and to you know the verse that we included today, which is Revelation twenty-one, four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And and I think again, we often individualize and personalize those verses and, and and forget that bigger context of what revelation 21 is talking about this completely new order of things that is is a communal experience is 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 a, an opening up of things to um it's not just about me and my relationship with jesus but actually what he's he's creating um the, the process of, of what he's creating
2: yeah it's in psalm 116 as well that sense of community you know it's it's in the presence of God that, um, and all the people, sorry, it's in the presence of all the people that the vow is fulfilled. Um, mm-hmm. As I say, you know, we sometimes say, um, no, this is just between me and God. Um, other people don't know, need to know about it, but it's evident in these verses that our relationship with God, our commitment to him, our response to him, is something that is known and seen by the way we live our lives.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the pastor of a previous church I was in used to talk about your this way relationship <laughs> and your that way relationship, which doesn't make sense when you can't see me. But it's your vertical relationship with God has a has a, a an inevitable impact on your horizontal relationships with with one another. Um, and you know, you know, that's an intentional thing. But I think it's also something that we can't we can't separate out our relationship with God and our responses to him from, from how we are with one another in, in community. And I'm interested in how we how do we do this then? How do we how do we lament either as individuals or in our church communities or in that global context?
1: I think one of the challenges is for people like me to sing, to, to choose songs which are more which don't buy into the therapeutic model, to, to lament I think as well it happens in a pastoral context in our conversations with each other to to encourage each other to say these these difficult words you know I, I'm so conscious when I go around people just how many difficulties that that many people live with and yet we so often pretend that they're not there and I do fear the damage of that mm-hmm. um, yeah it's a a real, a real challenge.
2: I think the pastoral thing, Neil, that's true for all of us, isn't it? And it comes up in the Bible-based trauma healing course. Um, there's a whole week when we look at um, how we listen well to each other. And often in those conversations with other people who are suffering and lamenting, we want to leap on to the solution, the, the therapeutic model, as you've been describing, and say, but God says this, or this will be true and often there's just a time for sitting together and we talked about this in the last podcast as well mm-hmm. and just saying like life is rubbish and life is really really hard and if if these psalms teach us anything that we need to make those space help people have those spaces mm-hmm. and not to, they have to leap on to being okay with god and i was thinking in verse when i was reading a mm-hmm. uh, Psalm 46 in verse 2 it says Therefore, we will not fear, and I'm sure in the past I've read that and that like you mustn't fear. You, you, God doesn't want you to be scared. You mustn't feel scared. And then I was reading it today, and I thought, no, 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 you can't actually say that. I won't fear unless you feared. If you never feared, you wouldn't. He's he's saying to himself and hearing God saying to him or herself, "I, I'm not. I, I won't fear because of you." But that doesn't mean we don't know fear. And I'm sure that. I've often, as a younger Christian, I was often, you know, like, don't worry. It's the same, isn't it? Being told not to worry will never stop you worrying. And that's a misuse of the a misuse of the Bible when Jesus says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. That's wasn't, Jesus wasn't saying, you're not my follower if you worry. He's just saying, I'm with you. You don't need to worry. And that's not the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's helpful. i I think as well there's something about us also acknowledging our own lament. So I think in uh, often as uh, particularly as you go on in age and maturity and leadership that there is that pressure to somehow not need to lament because you've got it all sorted. And I think there's a place for being vulnerable and being being appropriately vulnerable and appropriately open with our own struggles with people. Mm. The other thing I was just thinking about in terms of how we do it is, is—is you know, Neil, you've talked about singing and, and Jen, you talked about the pastoral uh, concern. I think using creativity, using um, physicality. So, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, I did a drama therapy course last year and I'm quite interested in, in how we use the arts therapeutically. Um, and I think that those... And Jen, you talked so movingly last time about that that drawing that you did of yourself and watching watching at the window with Jesus. Do um, you know, I think the place of of discovering some of that. So it, again, it's not just a cerebral understanding, and it's not even just a yeah. a pastoral response, but but and, and a words based response. But allowing people space, allowing people um, opportunity to respond with with creativity, maybe where there are no words. So either we find the words in the Psalms that we've talked about or, or the place where there are no words. Um, and We need to use that creativity to respond. Thanks. I, I don't know if any of you, either of you have anything else you wanted to add into the discussion? or
1: I wanted to reflect on a conversation I had with a missionary friend of mine who, after 20 years of missionary service, has returned to Scotland. And, and her, her journey has not been easy in returning to Scotland and indeed wasn't easy for the last few years of her missionary service. I, I see her as someone who who left Scotland with a great deal of... I mean, it just she's a wonderful person. She's one of my favourite people. Um, but, but left with, a, with a, a deep sense of conviction, of certainty almost, and has returned with bruises and wounds. And many of those have actually been inf- inflicted by other Christians. And I was talking to her about the, the David Smith book, Stumbling Towards Zion, because she knows David Smith, and uh, we were talking about the importance of lament, and she said that when we were in the missionary organization, it was very often the Japanese Christians who taught us to lament. They were the ones who brought us into touch with the need for us to speak our complaint to God. And I thought a lot about the Japanese Christians. The, the Japanese story of the church is, is not one in which to use a, a famous a phrase, I think it was Cyprian or Tertullian or one of the early church fathers said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the idea that the more blood is shed by a persecuted church it actually causes the church to, to flourish. Now that does happen. But in church history terms, that's probably not the story of, of the Japanese church. The Japanese church was established through Jesuits in the year 1400 They did make a mistake. They became too aligned to various Portuguese traders. And then at various points, various Protestants saw this as a chance a, a, to, to engage in colonial wars. So the whole of Japanese Christianity became embroiled too much in political concerns in Japan. What eventually happened is for three to four hundred years, the shoguns turned on Christianity with a brutality of oppression, almost unseen anywhere else in the history of the church and it was only in the 1850s when Europeans once again came back to Japan that they were absolutely just stunned stunned to discover that there still was a Japanese church for 200 years 300 years that church had survived through the most unbelievable persecution and there were hardly any of them left but they had learned something and I'm struck by another story of something that happened in the Second World War, a man called Louis Zamperini, who was converted in a Billy Graham crusade in the 19, late 1940s. He's got a famous book um, um, called Unbroken, which is about his life, and also a film called Unbroken, which is about his life. But he was imprisoned by the Japanese during the Second World War uh, in the Pacific on these horrendous Pacific death islands. But he tells the story of one day a new guard appearing, and the new guard was different. Normally, new guards would appear and they would beat the prisoners to try and impose and, uh, their, their own brutality upon them. But this man was different. And one day he said to Louis Zamperini, he said, you Christian? He had very broken English. And even though at that stage, Louis Zamperini had not been converted, he had a Catholic upbringing, a very faint one. And he said, yes, me, Christian. And uh, through that guard, his name was Kawamura. He and the other prisoners used to have a conversation, they would uh, teach each other English and Japanese, they would draw pictures. Very occasionally, the guard, Kawamura, was able to bring them uh, pieces of candy. And what uh, the memory for Louis Zamperini was, was that actually of Kawamura, they understood very little of what he said, but his goodwill needed no translation. And Kawamura was unable to improve the physical conditions in which the captives lived, but his kindness was life-saving. And I think of those Japanese Christians, Mm. persecuted, many of them were forced to do a thing called Christ-stepping, where they were forced to walk over images of Jesus and of the Virgin Mary. But something very deeply embedded in Japanese Christianity was about lament, but it also meant a strength, so when it came to the horrors of the Second World War, Kawamura was able to tend to Louis Zamperini. And I think if we are able to find a voice for lament, then we will also be more able to serve and more able to be prophets of justice.
0: Hmm. Mm. So much in there, Neil. That's really rich to think about. We'll put links to um what you talked about there into the into the show notes if people are interested in in finding out more about about that. Um the history of the Japanese church in particular there. Thank you for that. Um I think we're gonna draw things to a close. Jen, tell us today what are your
2: gems? Well, I hope listeners know that my gems are only available because I collect other people's gems and I had the privilege of being at a conference last week which was being held in Nashville in the United States of America. I wasn't actually there, of course. I was on Zoom with o- over 900 other delegates from around the world and the conference was on um, intergenerational ministry and children's spirituality. And the gem that I came away from that conference with was that it's in the normal everyday parts of life that faith grows and God is known and I think sometimes maybe particularly as parents or anybody who's giving care to children and trying to help them grow in their faith we sometimes think oh, it's the event I take my child to or it's a church service I take my child to or it's when we sit down and we read the bible together very seriously that the faith will grow now those things are important we need them to but the bible particularly in Deuteronomy that, you know, that beautiful verse about when you walk on the road when you sit down at night I was just reminded that it's in those moments in the car journeys, in the tears, in the happy times, in the messy meals, in, out in the garden, going for a walk, going to school, picking up, chatting, conversing, that we share our life with Jesus with our children and they can share theirs. And the questions arise in the conversation. So don't ever as a parent feel that you're failing because you only have conversations in the normal every day, because I really think that's actually where God does most of his work.
0: Thank you very much. There's loads to think about there. And so the final um, thing to say just before we go, well, a couple of things to say before we go. One is that next time we're going to be talking about Joseph. Um, So there is a a new version of the story of Joseph coming out from Scottish Bible Society this summer. Um, There'll be lots of information about that available on social media and so on. And uh, we're going to spend the next five episodes looking at the story of Joseph. So if you are reading ahead, then you're looking at Genesis 37 through to 50. And I think next time what we're going to start with is just a discussion of of the, the overall story of Joseph, why it is that it takes up so many chapters of Genesis? Mm. What's the significance of it? How does it fit with the, the the bigger timeline of the people of God in Scripture? So, if you're keen, um, a keen bean, and you want to read ahead, then then we're looking at those chapters um, as a as a whole next time. But before we finish today, so just what, what are your takeaways? So, Jen, do you have a takeaway from today?
2: A very practical takeaway that when I write letters or cards to people. Who are going through tough times? I'm going to try and use the laments of the Psalms rather than the therapeutic bits. That's not necessarily new, a new thought, but it's been I've just been reminded of it. What what mm-hmm. do I give to people from the Bible?
0: Great, that's great. Uh, Neil, what about you?
1: I think I'm being pushed to be braver. And to move out the envelope of comfort. So, when addressing the scriptures to be personal and political, to when choosing a tone for how worship is, because I'm often involved in that, to choose tones which are both joyful and sorrowful. And as ever, when listening to Jen, um, to do more Bible studies with people that are younger than me.
0: <laughs> it's great. It's great. Well, I I feel quite uh, convicted about my sense of responsibility as a leader to to be honest and open about where Mm. I'm at in lament and and create space for people to do that. So that's that's going to be my takeaway. They all sound sound quite similar, really, in in what we're thinking there. So thank you both very much indeed. And do get in touch with us. Let us know where you're listening and uh, join us next time to talk about the book of Joseph. Bye.